0: Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of drug use, suicidal ideation, and violence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. 66-year-old Herman Tarnower wrapped his arm around Gene Harris and beamed. He held her tight as they ascended the grand staircase of the Ritz-Paris Hotel to their luxury suite. The room was even more beautiful than they expected. Herman and Jean walked to the window and took a moment to drink in the scenery. Paris, in the fall. They couldn't have asked for a more romantic setting for their vacation. Herman gave Jean a quick kiss and headed to the bathroom to freshen up. He straightened his tie in the mirror, adjusted his slacks, and flashed a winning smile at his reflection. Just as he was about to turn and leave, he heard a deafening crash outside the door. He rushed out to the bedroom as Jean let out a blood-curdling scream. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, And this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim or killer and co-conspirator? if there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This week, we're covering the unconventional relationship between educator Gene Harris and her lover, Dr. Herman Tarnower. We'll discuss how Herman selfishly treated Gene as an afterthought for years leaving her depressed and volatile. Next week, we'll dissect their tragic final night together, as well as the struggle to separate truth from delusion and the dramatic trial that followed. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
2: This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video, and of course, Prime's fast free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things, whatever you're into. It's on Prime. Visit amazon.com/prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Gene Harris was born in
0: 1923 with a silver spoon in her mouth. The daughter of a successful engineer, her family was the quintessential image of American wealth in the early 20th century. She was catered to by a full staff of maids and cooks, attended the best private schools in Ohio, and spent every summer relaxing in her family's beautiful second home. But while Jean's parents had plenty of money, her childhood wasn't always easy. Though her father was brilliant, he was also a ruthless, cold man who was impossible to please. As a girl, Jean spent most of her time trying and failing to impress him. She studied hard, never broke the rules, and overachieved in nearly everything she put her mind to. There was only one area where Jean struggled, romance. Though she wanted to be successful on her own, she was raised to believe that marriage should be a woman's ultimate goal. The societal pressure to become a dutiful wife was drilled into her from a young age, and the older she got, the more conflicted she became. By the time she entered college, Jean was a capable, independent, and opinionated woman. But she was terrified of ending up alone. Given how distant her father was, she promised herself she would find someone who supported her. Her search for love led her to a childhood friend named Jim. The two grew closer over time, and by Jean's junior year of college in 1943, they were engaged. The couple married shortly after and moved to Gross Point, Michigan. Jean did her best to embrace her new life. She got a job as a grade school teacher and a few years later had two children, David and Jimmy. Now that she had a family of her own, Jean had accomplished everything society told her was important, but it didn't bring her happiness. In fact, as the years wore on, she found herself growing more and more bored. Jim treated her well, but Jean came to realize they weren't a good match for each other. She was intellectual, curious, and always strived to better herself. Jim, on the other hand, was just a bit dull. Despite her unhappiness, Jean was fully committed to being the perfect wife. She bottled up her negative feelings and pushed them deep down, sacrificing her dreams for the good of her family. Before I continue with Jean's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. In a 2019 article on emotional suppression, psychologist Crystalline Salters-Pedno detailed the harmful impact of unhealthy emotional regulation. When individuals suppress their painful emotions without addressing the underlying problem, the feelings inevitably come back stronger. If they are never managed properly, this can lead to a cycle of avoidance and serious psychological consequences. Over the years, Jean Harris became all too familiar with that cycle. She thought she'd mastered the art of self-control, not realizing that by ignoring her deepest fears, she was avoiding the problems that caused them in the first place. She was trapped in a dangerous pattern, which only worsened as she got older. Perhaps if Jean had openly discussed her marital problems with her husband, they could have worked through them, but she never did. By 1965, she was convinced that the rest of her life with Jim would be uneventful and meaningless. Choosing to avoid their troubles altogether, she filed for divorce at 42 years old. A year later, she accepted a position as director of Springside Middle School in Philadelphia, and moved her two adolescent sons east. The position was much more stressful than teaching, but she needed the higher salary to pay for her son's new private school. She got some child support from Jim, but refused any alimony, wanting to support her boys all on her own. The new job proved to be even more challenging than she thought, however. She was so busy at work that she barely had any time for herself. Concern for her well-being, Her friend Marge invited her to a dinner party in December 1966. Jean was hesitant, but Marge insisted. That was a night that Jean met Dr. Herman Tarnower. was a tall, intelligent physician who lived and worked in upstate New York. A member of Westchester's exclusive Century Country Club, the 56-year-old was considered one of the most eligible men in his age bracket. Jean found him fascinating, the polar opposite of her ex-husband. She and Herman spent the entire evening at each other's side, and by the end of the night, they were smitten. A few months later, in March of 1967, they had their first official date. To Jean, the night seemed straight out of a movie. They dined at a fancy New York City restaurant and went dancing at the luxurious Pierre Hotel. The following day, Herman sent her roses and she knew she was in love. The fairy tale continued over the next few months until Jean was head over heels. In May, after only a few weeks of dating, Herman gave Jean an enormous diamond engagement ring that today would be worth almost $78,000. She was stunned and exhilarated. Though she had grown tired of marriage before, she knew Herman was different. She couldn't wait to be his wife. When the rest of Herman's social circle heard about the engagement, they were surprised. Many couldn't believe that Herman Tarnauer was actually getting married after so many years as a bachelor. Jean soon learned that before their relationship, Herman had rarely been serious about any other women. But she decided not to let his past bother her. She was more than ready to put all of it behind them if Herman was. During the summer of 1967, she started planning the wedding. She felt like she had a million things to do all at once. On top of it all, she couldn't shake the suspicion that Herman was getting cold feet. Just as she tried to push the thought out of her mind, the phone rang. It was Herman. Jean decided it was finally time to confront him once and for all. She gathered her courage and said to him, The moment is approaching when we have to set a date for this. School is going to start and I have to know where I'm going to be living and where the children are going to be in school. There was a long silence before Herman finally responded. He told her he couldn't go through with the wedding. Jean froze with the phone to her ear. The rest of the conversation was a blur of apologies and excuses. By the time Herman hung up, she could barely stand. She spent the next couple of agonizing weeks explaining to her friends that the wedding was off. According to them, she seemed surprisingly calm about it. No doubt her feelings were overwhelming, but like she had done so many times before, Jean took a breath and pushed them deep down inside. Because Herman had never married before, she tried to convince herself that it wasn't her fault. It was a difficult pill to swallow. She tried to return the engagement ring, but Herman refused. He told her that he truly cared for her. Marriage just wasn't for him. Feeling guilty, he thought they needed a clean break. Nothing he said made her feel better in the slightest. Jean tried to distract herself with work, but she couldn't get Herman out of her head. She tried her best to stay away, but just three weeks after their engagement ended, Herman invited her out to dinner. She couldn't help herself, and the evening reminded her how much she loved their time together. After some thought, Jean decided that she wanted to be with Herman, even if it meant giving up on the idea of a conventional relationship. She knew he would never fully commit to her, and she thought she could accept it. That November, she wrote him a letter, claiming to embrace his independent lifestyle and asking to stay in his life. They could still be together, even if it meant defining their relationship differently. To Jean, the letter meant that she was an independent, modern woman who flouted conventional dating norms. While she secretly hoped Herman would settle down with her one day, she wrote that they would be bound by no formal ties and no commitments, save for those of the heart. Herman, on the other hand, took Jean's letter as a license to do whatever he wanted, without considering her feelings. In December 1967 he invited her on a trip to mark the official start of their new, ill-defined relationship. They weren't officially a couple, but behaved like one whenever it was convenient for Herman. While Jean thought she could handle the new arrangement, she had no idea of the jealousy, heartbreak, and tragedy in store. When we return, Jean and Herman's new relationship takes a nosedive.
1: You discover their practices, seek their advice, and let yourself become more vulnerable than ever before. They have the ability to heal what the doctors can't, or so they say. Hi listeners, it's Vanessa from the Parcast series Cults. Be sure to check out our four-part special on Miracle Healers airing right now. Meet figures from around the world who claimed powers and pushed remedies but harbored more sinister intentions. You don't want to miss it. And if you're looking for more episodes on the most radical and deadly groups in history, tune in to Cults every Tuesday. From Jim Jones and the People's Temple to Charles Manson and the Manson Family to Keith Raniere and Nexium you'll uncover the unscrupulous methods used to turn bright-eyed recruits into die-hard believers. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Cults, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McKrispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Now, back to the story. In the summer of 1967, the engagement between 44-year-old Jean Harris and 57-year-old Herman Tarnauer dissolved. Jean claimed that she was happy to stay with Herman in a non-committed relationship, but deep down hoped he would marry her one day. Over the next couple of years, their romance was defined by extravagant love, punctuated with bittersweet compromise. The two of them dated, traveled together, and supported each other. Jean was happy to spend time with Herman whenever she could. But at the same time, Herman capitalized on his status as a single eligible doctor whenever Jean wasn't around. He rarely spent his time alone and saw nothing wrong with taking other lovers besides Jean. His affairs weren't a secret, and since he had been honest about his feelings up front, Jean convinced herself that she had no reason to be upset. Through it all, she patiently waited, still convinced that Herman would come around one day. Until then, her job was to make sure he never had a reason to leave Though she was jealous of Herman's relationships with other women, she never complained or broached the subject of marriage. Whenever she found evidence of another lover in his room, she swallowed her heartbreak and kept it to herself. While she tried to stay positive, her friends weren't as forgiving. They complained about Herman's selfishness and inability to commit. They couldn't understand Jean's patience with him, but she didn't care. After spending years with a safe but uninteresting husband, she was intoxicated by Herman's spontaneity. She never knew when he would suddenly whisk her away to some far off land. She figured that as long as she was always available when he called, he'd never have to ask anyone else. Jean sacrificed her entire social life to make sure her free time could be spent with Herman. The truth was, whenever she wasn't at work or with him, she was utterly alone. She was a single middle-aged woman trying to raise two teenage boys on her own and run a middle school at the same time. The longer her relationship with Herman went on, the more she relied on him to be her sole source of emotional support. She came to him with everything. When she started getting frazzled from the pressures of her job, Herman wrote her a prescription for a drug called Desoxyn. What he failed to tell her, however, was that Desoxyn was a high-grade methamphetamine. It was commonly known as a last resort for weight loss when safer methods didn't work, and it was unheard of to prescribe for long periods. When taken unnecessarily, Desoxyn worked similar to cocaine. It's unclear if Herman understood the possible side effects, Research on prolonged use of the drug was non-existent, but that didn't stop him from supplying it to Jean for years. It was wildly irresponsible, though there's no evidence that he tried to harm her on purpose. For all he and Jean knew, he was genuinely trying to help her fatigue. At first, the drugs worked wonders. Jean could stay alert and focused at all hours, She finally had the energy to work all day and then go and see Herman on the weekends. But she still worried she wasn't devoting enough time to him. She looked for a new job to be closer to his home in upstate New York and soon took a position at a school in Connecticut. In the summer of 1971, after four years of dating, she and Herman were closer than ever before. The new job wasn't exactly easy. As headmistress, Jean was responsible for improving her school's reputation. She wanted it to become one of the best institutions in the country. What started off as an earnest effort quickly became a revolving door of arguments with parents, teachers, and board members. Luckily for Jean, her romantic life was thriving. Her new closeness to Herman meant she could see him as often as she liked, and his home became her sole retreat from the stresses of work. For his part, Herman loved having Jean close by, but still refused to fully commit to her. In fact, he was more distracted than ever before, thanks in large part to his new assistant, Lynn Treforos. Lynn, a beautiful woman in her early 30s became Herman's personal assistant in early 1971. She was young, loyal and practically worshipped the ground he walked on. To her, Herman was a brilliant mentor who she owed her career to. Herman seized on her affection and the two began an intimate relationship right around the time Jean moved close by. While it wasn't uncommon for Herman to date other women, Lynn stood out from the crowd. She always made herself available when he asked, professionally and otherwise. It was yet another emotional blow for Jean, and she tried to endure it like she did everything else. But the more she fought against her jealousy, the more it grew, making matters worse. Around this same time, Jean started to get anonymous, disturbing phone calls from an unidentified source. Sometimes the voice was a man's, sometimes a woman's. The strangers often insulted Jean and shared lewd details of Herman's sex life with her. They reminded her constantly that Herman had other women and claimed that Jean meant nothing to him. It's unclear how often they came, but the calls continued for months. Jean never recognized the voices or found out why they were calling in the first place. Whoever it was, they were extremely well-informed about Herman's personal life and seemed to enjoy torturing Jean just for the sake of it. For weeks on end, Jean was terrified to pick up the phone she had to figure out who her tormentors were. She assumed it must be someone close to Herman who had access to his private information, but she had no leads. When she told him about the calls, Herman suggested she just ignore them. It was a recipe for disaster. The constant reminders that Herman was still seeing Lynn, in addition to the stresses of work, wore Jean out physically and mentally. Soon, she relied on the diet pills just to get through the day. The consequences were severe. In a 2019 article detailing desoxin abuse, counselor Eric Patterson described the harmful impact of long-term exposure to the drug. Possible side effects include suppressed appetite, insomnia, irritability, and personality changes. As with any methamphetamine, Disoxin is highly addictive and can even lead to psychotic or bipolar symptoms. As the body becomes more reliant on the drug to function, people can develop hallucinations, mania, and become violent. By 1974, Jane was barely eating and had trouble sleeping. Her colleagues started noticing dramatic changes in her behavior. Once professional and poised, she grew erratic and anxious. She started becoming prone to emotional outbursts and frequently struggled to make simple decisions. The professional and personal turmoil alone was too much for one person to handle, but when combined with the impact of gene substance abuse, it was impossible for her to think clearly. She was trapped in a cycle of emotional and physical harm. Through it all, Jean never reached out to anyone else for help, even as the taunting phone calls continued for years. Not even her own sons knew the extent of her pain. The truth was that Jean still considered herself fiercely independent. She was in denial about how much she needed Herman in her life. No matter how bad things got, she told herself she could count on him to stay by her side. That devotion would be put to the test during a trip to Europe in the fall of 1976. Jean Harris gazed through the hotel room window onto the courtyard below. Nothing was more beautiful than Paris in the fall. She counted her blessings. Though she was 53 years old and Herman was 66, the vacation made her feel like a teenager again. Jean heard Herman humming from the bathroom and smiled. As she got dressed for their night out, she noticed his cufflinks on the mantelpiece. He had once told her he had gotten them from a grateful patient years earlier. But as she looked at them now, she spotted a small engraving on the inside she'd never noticed before. She held them to the light and read the inscription. All my love, Lynn. February 23rd. 1974 Jean's face got white hot as if she needed another reminder of that woman how dare she intrude on such a perfect night she tried to control herself but years of repressed emotion suddenly burst out of her without thinking Jean hurled a glass into the vanity mirror with a thunderous crash It shattered into a million pieces. Herman rushed from the bathroom to see Jean shaking above the pile of broken glass. It took a moment for him to realize what had happened. When he did, he calmly apologized. He said he understood Jean's anger and that he was sorry for offending her. Neither of them acknowledged the outburst any further. Jean excused herself to the restroom, and they never spoke of it again. There was no long talk about their relationship, no discussion of boundaries, and definitely no sign that Herman would stop seeing Lynn. The best Jean could hope for was that he'd get better at hiding it from her. As she washed her face and reapplied her makeup, Jean came to a realization that night things weren't ever going to change. She could either forgive Herman once and for all for his indiscretions or leave. He wasn't ever going to commit, at least not to her. Jean knew she should walk away, but she couldn't bring herself to do it. Even though Herman was the cause of her pain, he was also ironically the cure. He was the only person she could lean on, no matter what he did, no matter how humiliated his actions made her feel, she would have to forgive him, because she loved him. She told herself that was all that mattered. By that point, she and Herman had been in this relationship for almost a decade. Jean was desperate to make it work. In her mind, she had no other choice. She didn't care that he would never fully reciprocate her feelings. She simply couldn't bear the thought of losing him, especially with Lynn lurking around the corner. No matter how hard things got, she refused to be replaced. When she returned home from the vacation, Jean got a message from the school. While she was away, she had received another taunting call from the strangers. Only this time, they left a callback number. Jean sat down and dialed the phone. It rang once, then twice. Finally, someone picked up. With a rising fury, Jean recognized Lynn Treforo's confused voice on the other end of the line. When we return, paranoia and depression take control of Jean's life.
2: This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime.
0: Now, back to the story. By the end of 1976, 53-year-old Jean Harris had been with her lover, 66-year-old Herman Tarnauer, for nine years. She had always quietly tolerated Herman's womanizing, but she was starting to worry that he was replacing her with his 36-year-old assistant, Lynn Triforos. As if that wasn't bad enough, Jean had also been repeatedly harassed over the phone by an anonymous man for years. When she returned from a trip to Paris with Herman, she saw that the stranger had finally left a callback number. When she dialed it, Lynn Treforos answered. Furious, Jean accused Lynn of hiring the man to harass her and ordered Lynn to leave her alone but Lynn was just as confused as Jean was. She said she had no idea what was going on. She'd never hired anyone to harass Jean. No matter how hard she insisted though, Jean didn't believe her. Over the next few months, Jean tried to turn the tables. She became the tormentor, repeatedly calling Lynn to demand she stop her sick game she convinced herself that Lynn was out to get her, paranoid that it was only a matter of time before the call started up again. Lynn eventually had to change her phone number when Jean refused to stop calling. Shortly after, the anonymous man returned and gave Lynn's brand new number to Jean. Then, Jean resumed her harassment and the cycle went on. The madness continued for two more years, with Lynn changing her number five times. The true identity of the caller was never found, but Jean remained certain it was all a twisted act of jealousy concocted by her rival. Unfortunately, when she shared her accusations with Herman, he took Lynn's side. Evidently, Lynn had beaten Jean to the punch and had already talked to him about her relentless calls. Since Jean had no proof of her allegations and couldn't deny that she had been harassing Lynn, Herman chose not to believe her. Jean was shocked that after so many years together, Herman would believe Lynn over her. He even threatened to cut Jean out of his life if she didn't stop calling Lynn, Without any support, Jean felt more fragile than ever. She thought she was on the cusp of losing the love of her life. The stress burnt her out. Already malnourished and sleep-deprived from the desoxin pills, Jean had no more gas left in the tank. She kept hoping Herman would come to his senses and commit to her. But the more she fought, the more he retreated. She didn't know whether to stay or go. At the end of 1976, while she once again grappled with her feelings towards Herman, she was offered the job opportunity of a lifetime to be headmistress of the illustrious Madeira Girls School in Virginia. Jean's colleagues urged her to take the job. It was a great chance to get away from Herman and start fresh, but she was torn. If she accepted, she'd be a five-hour drive away from her biggest source of emotional support. She was terrified that if they saw each other less, Herman would eventually forget about her. On the other hand, she knew that if she declined, she might never get another chance. Ultimately, Jean realized it would be a disservice to herself if she refused the position. In early 1977, she made preparations to move to Virginia, Throughout that year, Jean worked hard to turn her new school around. She was at the height of her professional career, but couldn't stop thinking about Herman and Lynn. Whenever she had free time, she made the agonizing drive to upstate New York. She'd do anything if it meant spending just a few more hours with Herman. Unfortunately, the demands of her new job were greater than ever. She and Herman gradually saw each other less and less. She could do nothing but watch as he slowly replaced her with Lynn. She heard all about their dates, parties and trips and felt abandoned. No matter how hard she tried, she couldn't compete. Each day seemed like a chore and as much as she tried to focus on work, she struggled just to get out of bed. By that point, she was completely dependent on desoxyn to function. Everyone else could tell she was coming apart at the seams, but no one besides Herman knew she was taking the pills and he apparently didn't notice her distress. Whenever Jean complained about her troubles at work, he simply upped her dosage and sent her on her way. She had no other support and refused to seek outside help. In the fall of 1978, She fell into a dark depression. Jean was cold and exhausted. She couldn't remember the last time she had a good night's sleep. Herman wasn't answering his phone, as usual. She felt pathetic for trying a third and fourth time. Frustrated, she felt the tears well up in her eyes. She couldn't believe what her life had come to, She was whimpering over a man who couldn't have cared less about her. Never in a million years did Jean Harris think she would need someone else so badly. She had never relied on other people before. She had no idea why she craved Herman's love so badly, but she did. She couldn't do it on her own. She reached for the phone again, then hesitated. She told herself to toughen up. She didn't need anybody. She refused to become a helpless infant who needed other people to take care of her. If ever the day came when she couldn't survive on her own anymore, she would rather die than become dependent on someone else. She forced herself out of bed. There was work to do. By Christmas 1979, Jean's life was spiraling out of control. Her deteriorating mental state made her difficult to work with and her colleagues turned on her. Herman grew tired of her negativity towards Lynn and stopped inviting her over as often. The holidays were especially hard. Her sons were now in their late 20s and had lives of their own. Jean found herself alone, looking over old photographs and letters, desperate to return to better times. Whenever she and Herman did manage to get together, he was distant. Though she never saw Lynn, Jean could feel her presence inside the house. It took all of her willpower not to scream whenever she found one of Lynn's dresses laying around. She realized she was no longer comfortable in Herman's home. She wasn't comfortable anywhere Whether Herman noticed her depression or not is a mystery, but by the spring of 1980, he was too busy to care. He had recently released his first book, The Complete Scarsdale Medical Diet, and was more concerned with TV appearances and press releases than Jean. As he approached his 70th birthday, Herman was happier than ever, all while Jean was inching closer to a mental breakdown. To calm her down, Herman upped her to socks and dosage, as always. But nothing could prepare Jean for the latest humiliation he had in store. Instead of a traditional birthday, Herman's friends decided to organize a lavish banquet to celebrate his lifetime of achievement. It was going to be an elegant and prestigious event. And when Jean found out that Lynn was going to be his guest of honor, she was distraught. After all their years together, she demanded to be at his side for what she considered the most important occasion of his life. Jean called Herman's friend, Dan, who was organizing the evening and insisted on being there. According to Dan, her behavior on the phone was completely out of character. He couldn't believe the self-assured Jean Harris was crying and begging him to be Herman's date. He didn't know what had happened, but he knew something was wrong. In the months leading up to the banquet, Jean barely managed to stay above water. Her personal and professional lives were falling apart. With her nerves frayed and the stress piling up, Jean forgot to refill her desoxin prescription in March. On the 5th, she completely ran out and called Herman for more. He promised her he'd have some the next time they got together. Then he shifted the subject to ask about a few books that had been misplaced in his home. Jean, already high-strung, thought Herman was accusing her of stealing his things. She became furious. He assured her that wasn't what he meant and changed the subject again to his banquet. When she asked who'd be at his side, He told her that neither she nor Lynn would be next to him. Instead, they'd all be sitting at separate tables on opposite sides of the room. Jean was shocked. Herman claimed this was a compromise to satisfy both women, but she didn't see it that way. To her, it was his way of telling the world that she and Lynn were both expendable. Neither one was good enough to sit at his table. Jean didn't know what made her angrier, the idea that he considered her and his assistant to be on equal grounds, or the fact that she was being banished to a lowly side table on the biggest night of his life. More than ever, Jean felt betrayed and unappreciated. She alternated between hopelessness and fury. Things only got worse. By the evening of Friday, March 7th, she had been off to Soxon for three days straight. She didn't intend on stopping cold turkey, but had no way to replenish her supply. When she finally got home after another exhausting week of work, she could barely keep a grasp on reality. Frightened and delirious, she locked herself in her room and tried not to black out. In her 2006 biography of Jean Harris, author Sheena Alexander detailed the effects of such an abrupt methamphetamine withdrawal. She wrote that even after short exposure to disoxin, symptoms could have included severe fatigue, agitation, and depression. Considering Jean had taken the drug daily for almost 10 years, there was literally no precedent for what she went through. Alexander writes that, The full effect of the sudden absence of the drug after such prolonged use, as Jean Harris had experienced, is unknown. Doctors say such studies have been considered too cruel to perform, so there is no data. The next two days passed in a blur. There were no words to describe the agony. Jean tried to call Herman for help, but couldn't reach him. In despair, she wrote him a letter expressing all the grievances that had built up over the last 14 years. She didn't stop until she'd written 11 full pages. Then, convinced she was about to die, she started composing her will. By the end of the weekend, the letter was sent and her final wishes were recorded. When Monday morning arrived, Jean felt lucid enough to call Herman again Miraculously, she got through. All she remembered later was begging him not to read the letter she'd sent. Even after everything he put her through, she didn't want to come off as whiny. Following the phone call, Jean opened her mail and was surprised to find a message from her favorite student. The girl criticized Jean for recently expelling four other students for smoking marijuana. The note claimed that most students were guilty of the same infraction and called Jean a hypocrite for punishing the girl so harshly. With this final tiny criticism, Jean Harris broke. In an instant, she felt her entire world come crashing down. Herman had left her to die without the pills he'd made her dependent on. Her students, who she'd worked so hard for, had turned their backs. Everyone wanted something from her, but no one was willing to give. She was all alone. A toxic combination of betrayal, depression, and withdrawal symptoms left Jean feeling empty. She couldn't take it anymore. She wanted to end her life, but before she did, She had to see Herman one last time. Jean called him again and asked if she could come over that night to talk. Without going into details, she said she had a few rough weeks and wanted to see him face to face. Herman brushed her off at first. Jean pleaded with him, saying that another day would be too late. He eventually agreed and then abruptly hung up. Jean barely registered his annoyance, She rushed outside to her car, flush with anticipation. It was the same excitement she'd felt countless times over the years. She was going to see the love of her life once again. Only now, with her revolver at her side, she knew it would be for the last time. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back Wednesday with part two of Gene Harris and Herman Tarnower's story. We'll discuss their tragic final night together and the fatal shooting that tore the couple apart forever. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Grayson Niles, with writing assistance by Terrell Wells, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Lainey Hobbs.